From the very beginning, this has been a story about two men who died and one man who was supposed to. It was 1975, and I got a call from my sister. 45 years ago. She said that Frank and Rufus had been shot. Two murders in broad daylight on a warm afternoon. I mean, I just started crying. January 31st, 1975. My brother died right away. Frank lived just a short day or two, and he passed on. I mean, it was just about more than we could take. Within days, the city of Greenville, South Carolina, began to cover up its wounds and heal as it covered the first two men in frozen Carolina clay. When we went to the funeral, most of the narcotics guys rode with me. Narcotics Lieutenant Frank Looper and his father Rufus. They had a lot of police cars behind the hearse and the famine car. The newspaper covered the story, the murders and the funerals, a tidy 1975-era news cycle that wrapped up the story and gave the city at large its closure. But elsewhere, there was Vera Looper. She was just a nervous wreck. A wife and mother. Tried to console Vera. She was just about crazy. It was terrible. And Rufus Franklin Looper Sr. I just remember how profoundly upset my grandfather was. The father and grandfather, who lost two of his favorite men at the same time. It was devastating for my daddy. He was just heartbroken. And brothers sisters, cousins, and friends. I was a kid, 23, 24 years old. Lost in a landslide of grief. I remember going down in the basement and crying because of that. A lot of it was for Frank, a lot was for his mom. The people who loved the Looper men became a family, bound by both blood and love. Blood spilled in a midday murder. It made us all realize that you can be here one day and gone tomorrow and love of two men. And that's true today. Who may still not be resting in peace. A third man was supposed to die. Not in an execution style killing, but an actual execution. It didn't wait for you to get the chair. In the South Carolina electric chair. That man, Charles Wakefield Jr. at age 22, duly tried and convicted for two murders and sentenced to die. I was scared. They had me trapped. I knew he was going to kill me. That was supposed to be the end of it. Peace, or a 20th century version of it. After two execution-style murders, was supposed to come with another execution. A human sacrifice in the name of justice. Greenville County deputies ripped the black tape off their badges when police got Wakefield. And the prosecutor said, justice had been served. Innocent people should not be convicted and they should not be in prison. And if a mistake is made, it should be corrected. Uh, I do not believe a mistake was made. And I know things that other people don't know. Rumors of a cover-up didn't matter. From the very start, all the talk was it was an inside job. It didn't matter that some cops still believed drug runners had the loopers killed to protect a multi-million dollar drug operation. People were going nuts. We couldn't get it fast enough. It was 100% amphetamine. There was no cut in it whatsoever, and people were wired up. It didn't matter that organized crime gangsters were claiming credit for the murders. Frank 
Walker spoke up and says, well, I'm the one who killed him. He done me dirty. If I had known that Frank Walker killed him, honest to God, would have shot him right there myself. What mattered was justice for the city of Greenville. An investigation, an indictment, a trial, a verdict, and then an execution. That is exactly how the story was supposed to end. The man was supposed to die. He was supposed to be electrocuted. Any questions, any doubts were going to be taken to the grave when they fried Charles Wakefield. If Charles Wakefield Jr. had died in the electric chair, you would not be listening to this podcast. The city of Greenville wouldn't have known what we know today about doubts so numerous and powerful. Even the Looper's own family believes in Wakefield's innocence. I don't believe he did it. And it is just a grievous travesty of justice. There are people even people who believe in Charles Wakefield Jr.'s innocence, who say it's hard to blame the cops or the courts for the justice Greenville got, because it was 1975. What they did was not good, but as compared to everything else that was happening at the time in Greenville, they, they weren't the bad guys. They were actually the good guys. I, I'm, I'm not as quick to label anyone good or or bad, despite actions that I would hope they wouldn't be very proud of today. Put another way, the police had a year to work on this case. The prosecutor worked on it for a few months. The judge and jury had it four days. They didn't have 45 years of context and hindsight. I've read the trial transcript more times than I can count, but no version I've seen has the closing arguments from the trial. I've wondered for a long time, what would have happened if the attorneys had researched the crime for two decades and had a year to present the case to the jury? What would their closing argument have sounded like then? If you've listened to every episode of Murder, Etc., you've spent more hours just listening than Wakefield's jury spent in the jury box. Folks say hindsight is 2020. It's not escaped me. It's been almost exactly 45 years since somebody killed Frank and Rufus Looper. And now, this year is 2020. Maybe, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, in front of a 2020 jury, the closing argument would sound much different than it did in 1975. And so, if it pleases the court, I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. Somebody lied. It's up to you to decide who. If you figure out who's lying, you'll know whether Charles Wakefield Jr. killed Rufus and Frank Looper on January 31st, 1975. Attorney Eric Gottlieb came to this conclusion years ago. It was very cut and dry. Either he did it or he did not do it. Because Charles Wakefield Jr. had a lengthy and elaborate alibi supported by half a dozen witnesses. The notion that he would have this elaborate alibi was very striking to me. The prosecution had two jailhouse snitches and a 60-year-old Salvation Army employee. The only way that this guy didn't do it is if 
this guy is flat out lying, right? If Wyatt or Harper is lying. And number two, uh, May McIntyre is at best is honestly mistaken, if not also being untruthful. Either Wakefield's alibi witnesses were lying, or at least some of the prosecution witnesses were. It's that simple. As you start trying to decide, save yourself some time by listening to the only witness who has already admitted he lied on the stand. Mr. Wyatt Earp Harper. That was the first time I ever seen him in my life. It was the last time I ever seen him. The 1975 jury didn't know Harper would eventually admit lying in hopes of getting out of prison on another charge. But that's what happened. Harper said when he testified to being with Wakefield at the scene of the crime on the day of the murders, he'd made it all up and had been coached by police and prosecutors to do it. I was trying to get back to court get out of an arm robbery I was already in on and just about willing to do anything to get out. That's all you need to decide if Wyatt Earp Harper was lying. But if you need more, know this. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins wrote the Department of Corrections requesting Harper be transferred to an easier prison after his testimony. And later, Harper went on to kill at least one man. So, you just have to listen to Harper say he lied. And if you don't believe us, you can ask Harper yourself when he gets out of prison in 2021. You can't ask Miss May McIntyre. She died in 2010. She never admitted to lying. But you heard what her son said. But every time I run up on my mama, same story. So just... So we're clear, what is your feeling about whether your mom was there or not there that day? My opinion, my opinion only, mother wasn't there. My mother was not there. Don McIntyre told us in 2019, he thought his sister and brother-in-law convinced May McIntyre to get on the stand and tell a lie, all in a bid to help Don's brother-in-law wiggle out of a 24-year prison sentence. Help Diane to get Mike out. If she got Mike out, maybe they'd get their own lives and they'd get out of her house, and she would have to not support them. Because Miss May came forward eight months after the crime, under very strange circumstances, you might ask if there was any way to corroborate her story. In fact, there was. Police could have asked Vera Looper. So recall then what Vera saw from her window. Vera saw a young black male. Vera said she saw a black man walking up her driveway just before the murders. Miss May testified she passed Wakefield in the Looper driveway as she was walking out and he was walking in. But Vera Looper didn't see Miss May. Neither did any of the other eyewitnesses in the area. And Miss May didn't see Wyatt Earp Harper standing less than a block away. Wyatt Earp did say at trial he saw someone in what he thought was a nurse's uniform. But remember, Wyatt Earp now says that was all a lie. Even if you can't wrap your head around any of that, consider this. Miss May told police she had an assistant with her that day, one who joined her in the car just after the shots that killed the loopers. So who was that assistant? Did she see the shots or see Wakefield? We'll likely never know, because even today, no one knows who that assistant was, or if she ever existed to begin with. 
if that assistant had been there that day, imagine how much stronger a case it would have made for the prosecution to have someone put their hand on the Bible and say, yes, I was with Miss May that very day and she is telling the truth. That didn't happen. Ask yourself why. The prosecutor told you he was ready to go to trial without Wyatt Earp and base his entire case on Miss May and the testimony her daughter begged her to give. And so she called and said, I want to tell you, my mother has information about the Lupus killing, but she will not volunteer it. But she is, uh, I don't know how she conveyed it to Bridges, but she's, she's such an honest cr Christian woman that if she's asked, she'll tell it. But she's not going to volunteer it. Maybe you don't feel comfortable calling an honest Christian woman a liar. And you'd prefer to think she would never lie about having been there. If so, consider this. Outside of Wyatt Earp Harper's perjury, Miss May's eight-month-old eyewitness account is the only evidence Charles Wakefield Jr. was at the scene of the crime. In her first interview with the police, McIntyre told them she had looked at the man face-to-face -face within two or three feet. She said the man she saw had neat hair, neither short nor long. Later at trial, she said the man's hair was bushy and she didn't see a hat on his head. And despite being able to identify him, Looking directly in his face, she couldn't remember if he had a mustache or a beard. Taking all of that into account, remember these three things. One, Vera Looper said the black man she saw was wearing a hat. Two, on the day of the murders, Charles Wakefield Jr. had both a mustache and a beard. And three, Wakefield's hair was an afro, nearly 10 inches high and nearly as wide. You look at Charles's mugshot from when they brought him in on January 31st, 1975. He's got like a 10-inch afro and a beard. And then you look at the composite sketch, and it looks like Frank Sinatra wearing a, a fedora. Like, the guy didn't even look black. And then there's like a photo composite where they kind of selected photographs of different hairstyles and different eyes and different noses and different mouths and kind of assembled them all to create like a amalgam of a, a photograph. Although that person looked black, the hair was pretty short, there was no beard, no mustache. It was just very obvious that this was, there was something inconsistent here, something extremely wrong. Now ask yourself, if Miss May was actually there that day, did she see Charles Wakefield Jr.? You know what the Looper family thinks. This lady that was in the Salvation Army, months later she decided to identify him. She couldn't remember that. Of all the eyewitnesses that day, those telling the truth and those either mistaken or lying, only one caught more than a glimpse of the black man who ran away. Sees a guy standing right about where we are right now, sort of walking up and down the sidewalk a little bit. And she sees him a couple times. Vera Looper not only saw the black man walk up her driveway into the garage, she saw him exit after spending some time inside with the Looper men. And she saw him go back in before she heard the two shots. And then she watched him run. Vera saw a young black male running from the scene down Pendleton Street. But those weren't the only times she saw him. At trial, Vera Looper said the same man, she was sure of it, 
have been walking around on the sidewalk in front of her house at 10 or 10.30 that same morning. Now, think back to Charles Wakefield Jr.'s alibi. And then I went on to uh, employment office, and uh, it was a long line. I waited, 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 went in, did my paperwork, give you a little book, a little brown book to get marked to say you've been there. Wakefield said he'd been to the unemployment office. He had a little paper book to prove he'd been there. And if you didn't believe him or his book, his attorneys called the supervisors from the unemployment office, who testified Wakefield's appointment that morning was scheduled between 10.20 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. They couldn't say for sure he was there or was there at that time, but their records indicated someone showed up at that time claiming to be Charles Wakefield. So ask yourself, if Vera Looper saw the suspected killer outside her house between 10 and 10.30 a.m., and someone claiming to be Charles Wakefield went to the unemployment office that day, and that person's appointment was for 10.20 to 10.40? Was Charles Wakefield the man Vera Luber saw outside her house? And before you answer, remember... Vera went to the lineup and I think shocked everyone and said, no, I, I, I can't say that that man, Charles Wakefield, is the guy I saw that day my husband and son were murdered. And then, at trial, Vera looked at Charles Wakefield Jr. again and said she could not say he was the man she saw on January 31st, 1975. How does that add up for you? doesn't add up to me. All of a sudden, I'm going to go look for a job and do unemployment in the midst of robbing people. In an ordinary trial, that might be all a defense attorney decided to say. Charles Wakefield and his alibi witnesses said there was no way he could have committed the murders, and the state's witnesses said he did. You just have to decide who you believe. Given everything you've heard in this episode so far, did prosecutors prove the case? Did they prove it in the way longtime prosecutor Warren Mulry explained any prosecutor has to? The burden of proof that the prosecution has is beyond a reasonable doubt. Is there any reasonable doubt that this defendant committed the crime. It's a very high bar the state has to get over. It's a heavy burden. Always has been. Maybe you would be like the jurors in 1975 who believed May McIntyre and Wyatt Earp Harper more than Wakefield's alibi witnesses. Maybe you would have believed Miss May's eyewitness memory was rock solid, better than Vera Looper's and all the other eyewitnesses. Maybe you'd believe, as the state of South Carolina said, that Wyatt Earp Harper only recanted his testimony because he believed he could cash in by being part of a documentary. Even attorney Eric Gottlieb, who spent a decade of his life working pro bono, couldn't waste time trying to offer alternate theories. I focus on the story presented at trial because that's something concrete I can sink my teeth into, I can try to verify it, I can try to disprove it. If I stumbled across, you know, who actually did it, it's great, but I think I would have driven myself crazy trying to actually like solve the murders. Because he had to work within the framework of the legal system. But maybe you'd need more. Maybe you'd need to understand there might be a reason why Lieutenant Frank Looper had to die. Again, here's Warren Mowry. If you've got an alternative explanation for how the crime took place that contradicts what the state is trying to present, it's gonna go a long way to creating that reasonable doubt that's gonna acquit the defendant. Charles Wakefield Jr.'s attorneys did not offer a different theory 
Remember, the lead counsel had three weeks to prepare his case and didn't have the time to research the criminal underbelly of a city overrun with corruption and vice. The jury didn't have the time to listen to more than 20 episodes of a podcast that explained how a city struggled against its greatest demons. And no one told the jury just how hard Frank Looper was fighting for Greenville, South Carolina. It's very uncommon, almost unheard of, to hear a defense attorney invoke the victim's legacy as part of a murder defense. But there are people today who believe Frank Looper's life explained his death and explained it in a way that would exonerate Charles Wakefield Jr. And so, as you're deciding why you think the Loopers died, consider how Frank Looper lived. Frank kind of saw things in black and white and felt like there's right and there's wrong. No matter what the price, you do what's right, period. That means you take a bullet to the head, then so be it. You do the right thing, period. Lieutenant Frank Looper, by all accounts, was a true believer in the new war on drugs and the type of guy who would not abide corruption. And if you were involved and you were a fellow deputy sheriff or policeman or a judge, or a politician, or whoever else, and he had power, he didn't have power, I don't think he cared. I think he was going to apply the law and go after anyone and everyone that was involved in the drug trade. The legend of Frank Looper tells a story of a cop who sympathized with the junkies and harbored a barely contained rage against drug pushers. Frank working, I want to say in like Cleveland Park, he got up on top of like a picnic table and started yelling at everyone saying, I'm going to put every last one of you in prison if it's it the last thing I do, and carrying on and yelling and screaming. And you also know by now, the people who were involved in the drug trade were well-connected. Luke Cannon, a local kingpin, was responsible for distributing the millions of dollars worth of drugs stolen from Table Rock Labs. Table Rock, Table Rock Labs, and they got a, they said a million dollars worth of amphetamines. And Luke Cannon was a banker. He, he didn't rob the bank, he didn't sell the dope, but he was the guy that kept the cash, kept the dope, and made sure that it was dribbled out so that nobody was flashing a lot of money at one time, and the drugs stayed around to keep a constant flow of cash coming into the organization. One of Cannon's best friends was Bub Skelton, member of the notorious Dawson gang and a corrupt deputy who was not afraid to threaten his enemies. Well, I'll get you with a goddamn, you understand that? And I'll run you out of your own goddamn house if I took a fucking notion because I know I can do it. Well, I'm going to show you one thing. I'm coming to your house. Upset your wife, upset you, upset me. I'll be there in a minute. But that's not where Cannon's connections ended. Guys like Jackie Delk ran drugs for Cannon. And when Delk got jammed up at the botched pharmacy burglary, he was with gangster Bugs Hasse and another corrupt deputy, Danny Alexander. And Luke Cannon helped take care of their problems.
Frank Looper had his work cut out for him. And that Looper legend says he was either brave or naive enough to not give a damn what Cannon and his crew thought. Bob Skelton told me about it first. Brave or naive enough to rip a brand new Cadillac apart looking for dope. Here's all these crooks, Luke Cannon, all of them talking about it. I don't remember whose Cadillac it was. Tore the upholstery out of it as a fine Cadillac. Messed it up so bad they was pissed off about that because looking for dope. Yeah, looking for drugs. Took the damn breathers off the front and tore out the upholstery and all kind of shit just left it. He got mad as hell and thought he could tear the damn car all to hell. And Looper was amassing a team of young men ready to fight the war with him. To me, he was Clint Eastwood. I thought he was the coolest guy on the planet. I went and bought me a pistol like Frank's. I bought a holster like Frank. I got a badge like Frank. He was a good guy. He's a good cop. He didn't give a shit what happened to him or who he pissed off. He was going to do what he thought was right. And if that meant exposing corruption and stopping drug dealing, then so be it. In 1975, Looper had only been on the job for two years, and he already had a target on his back. I think a lot of really powerful people were hooked into the drug trade in some form or another, and they said enough. They tried to warn him. When his house got shot up, all right, I talked to Frank. Somebody saw a town car leave there real close at a high rate of speed, went into West Greenville right after the, when his house got shot up the first time. We knew then things were going to get bad. Frank Looper did what he could to investigate the warnings on his own. But he had a problem. He was real secretive about stuff. He never, he didn't talk to you a whole lot. Frank Looper didn't trust many of his fellow law enforcement officers, including some of the top-ranked men in the sheriff's office. And he warned his confidants to keep their mouths shut about their work. He was very paranoid in his job to begin with um, because people were after him. He got death threats on a continual basis. I mean, you could see it in his face. He was real concerned about that. And he goes, look, let me tell you something. If they ever ask you anything about what we're doing or what I'm doing or anything about me, you call me, you get in touch with me right then. You understand what I'm saying? Looper never nailed the men who shot up the Looper homes. And so he never got to hear what Arthur Fast Eddie Williamson told us in 2019. Bob Skelton and Luke Cannon hired Jerry Huffman and Kip Gibson to do that, to scare Frank Isle from doing something to him. It had something to do with Table Rock Laboratories. Well, they hired him to shoot into the house to try to scare the man. Meanwhile, Looper believed he was about to win his own personal war on drugs in Greenville County. He just came out and told me, he said, look, he said, there's going to be some stuff happening that's going to turn this county upside down. He said, if this thing goes, and I remember him putting it that way, if this thing goes, there's going to be people take a fall you would not believe. You would not believe. According to the people closest to him, Looper had someone on the inside. He was in the middle of a case, and he did have an informant. Looper never got a chance to bring those people down. I was probably one of the last people he spoke to that morning. Because on the morning of January 31st, 1975, somebody ended the biggest threat to the Greenville, South Carolina drug trade.
Frank came to the window and said, Danette, I'm going home, been working on something all night, I'm tired, I'm gonna be at mom and dad's, and if y'all need me, call me, I'll be home getting a few hours of sleep. Looper had worked all night, went to sleep, and woke up just in time to come face to face with his killer. I got a call looking for Ken Pettis, and they relayed that his partner had been shot. She gave them the word to come back to Greenville as quickly as you can because Ken's partner had been shot. He said, man, Frank's been shot. He's in the hospital. His daddy's already dead. Before Looper had even died, the people closest to him believed they already knew what had happened. The first thing in your mind, in everybody's mind, was it's a hit. You know, he's a narcotics officer. It's a hit. Within minutes, the cops readied for a counterattack. As you can probably figure, every law enforcement car in Greenville County was over in West Greenville that day. I'd be 69 in December. The only time in my life that I ever felt like this, and I'd have ran across the fellow that I don't kill Frank Looper, I would have blowed his fucking brains out and wouldn't talk nothing about it. But by the end of the day, the cops had not found a hitman. The best they had was the word on the street. Within 24 hours of the Loopers being murdered, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. Wacky Wakefield and a botched robbery. That is what the police came up with. They come up with this fellow Wakefield. But my partner at, at that particular time, he said, man, well, Wakefield couldn't hit the side of a damn barn. Like, this was a professional year. He was shot execution style. How does a thug hit two people in the back of the head right at the ear? You know, that was one of the first thoughts on everybody's mind. This is an execution style hit. And Greenville was known to be a little wild and willier back then than it is now. Regardless of what Luber's family, friends, and fellow law enforcement officers thought, the robbery theory stuck, at least for the investigating officers and the prosecutor. A lot of other people, though, never believed Wakefield pulled the trigger. The general feeling, even after it was said it was a robbery, there's a lot of people still, it was not a robbery, it was a hit. They always felt that way, and some of them will always be, and you know, I still do too. I think it was an assassination. I don't think it's a coincidence that both Frank and Rufus had a, a single bullet to the head two inches above the ear. I don't think that's a coincidence at all. He didn't heed the warning, so they killed him. Very simple, no mystery there. Today, in 2020, outside of Martin Scorsese movies, you don't hear much about contract killers. But back then, in South Carolina, and across the Dixie Mafia South, murder for hire happened. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in, has his ribs and pulls the trigger. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head because there's blood everywhere. The day Frank Looper died, the two contract killers who killed Bugs Hassey, Frank Walker, and Country Small were drinking in a bar together, not far from the Looper home. And according to Fast Eddie Williamson, Country had just rolled into town. He came up the day that Frank Looper got killed. I met him at the heart of Greenville at that time, and I had passed by Frank Looper's house at that red and white Eldorado that same day, all right? I seen the police cars there. At least one person told the cops a hitman had killed the Loopers and stashed his Cadillac at the junkyard 
where the local gangsters hung out. And even more people, Looper's family, friends, and fellow cops, started wondering how anyone got the drop on Frank Looper. I always thought that either it was a, a professional contract killer that got the jump on him, or that it was somebody that he knew that he was comfortable with. And over the years, right or wrong, old cops and old friends kept coming back to one man, a man who had already admitted to being a contract killer. Good afternoon, Mr. Willis. This is Frank Walker. Uh, you've made several attempts to contact me. In fact, you even sent me a letter by UPS. And at this time, uh, I would like for my life to stay quiet. Uh, it's been a long, hard road. And uh, I've had a quiet life, and I could, uh, would love for it to continue to, to stay that way. But I appreciate your offer. And, but if you have any more questions, uh, try to com contact me by phone. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Frank Walker, a now-paroled hitman who had worked alongside Frank Looper as a Greenville County deputy, and today is living in the northern mountains of South Carolina. Just shortly after that, it was shown that Frank Walker was capable of murder, a murder that he confessed to. So, in my opinion, he cannot be taken out as a possibility of the one that actually was responsible for the killings. I have felt all along that it had to be somebody that was known to them. And it would not be unreasonable for Frank Walker to have been known to his daddy, too. Just walked in and said, you know, hey, is Frank around or something like that without causing undue alarm. Outside of old cop suspicions and circumstantial evidence, there's nothing anyone has found that implicates Frank Walker in the Looper murders. But those old cops and many other people can't stop asking themselves, how could a hitman or anybody get so close to Frank Looper. I think everybody thought that. I'll be honest with you, I always thought Frank the one that did it. In a court of law, an attorney can't just submit anything as evidence. In journalism, a reporter can't speculate. That is why so many years have gone into trying to tie up the loose ends in the Looper murders case. Even today, there are so many questions we've not been able to fully answer. Anyone who has looked hard at the Looper murders can find themselves awake at night, staring at the ceiling. Few people know that better than attorney Eric Gottlieb. This is truly an obsession for me that even if I didn't work on it every day, I thought about it every day. Thinking about the case in the shower and on the subway and obsessing on the details. And it's possible the answers, if there are any, still might not answer the biggest questions in this case. When Frank Looper talked about the big case he was about to break, who was he about to bring down? He was aware of something terribly wrong that was getting ready to be made public. It was something due to the inside of where he worked in his workplace. Or it was somebody of a lot of importance. What had Frank Looper been working on the night before his murder? 
Why did he cancel his January 31st plans at the last minute? My husband and his deputy friend, Ken Pettis, had plans to go bird hunting. Frank Looper had scheduled to go with them, but at the last minute, he said that he was not able to go. There was a large open window on one side of the Looper garage. Was it possible there was more than one man inside with the Loopers? What happened to the murder weapon? And did it fire the third slug police found outside the Looper garage? And remember, Looper's inside man. He was in the middle of a case, and he did have an informant. Who was that informant? The botched people's drug burglary happened just weeks before the Looper murders. What did Frank Looper know about that job and the people involved in it? Did he know Jackie Delk, Danny Alexander, and Bugs Hassey? Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hassey's ribs. Why did Frank Walker and Country Small kill Bugs Hassey less than four weeks after the Looper murders? Was there anything suspicious about the death of a woman named Julia Ma on the same day as Bugs Hassey's? Ma, who was connected to gangsters and members of the Dawson gang that she worked for. When police officer Melvin Croft told his fellow officers to look into a wealthy and well-connected man named George Syracuse, why didn't anyone follow up on that? I mean, he busted one of those Syracuse people. I said, well, these are some very rich, powerful people. If Miss May was at the scene of the crime with an assistant, why didn't anyone ever find that assistant to corroborate the story? When informant Beverly Ann Johnson told deputies she saw Larry Poole in town, riding around with Frank Walker, why did Greenville police work so hard to discount her? What's more, whatever happened to Beverly Ann Johnson and Larry Poole? Did police ever find a white over red Cadillac? The questions go on and on. And those are just a few of the countless dead ends and rabbit holes that seem very important to answer, but are still open questions. The answer to one of them seems like it could answer a lot of other questions, too. I brought it up during episode 14. Almost exactly 24 hours after the Looper murders, someone sent a Western Union telegram to the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. It claimed to be from the New York Police Department and said the NYPD was sending one of its best men with the code name Mr. Clean to help with the investigation. It went on to say Mr. Clean's specialties were electronics, and an uncanny ability with women and their associates, and that he could only communicate via the phone. The FBI investigated and determined no one from the NYPD sent the telegram. The local cops believed the telegram was someone searching for information about the investigation. 
What the cops didn't answer was, did the telegram actually originate in New York City? Or did someone send it from somewhere else? Who would have cared enough about the investigation to attempt such a clever trick? And if police believed Charles Wakefield was the murderer, how could he have sent the telegram at 1.26 p.m. on February 1st, when he was still locked up in jail? Every day, it seems like there's another question. As recently as a few episodes ago, police admitted finding and losing what might have been evidence no one had ever admitted existed. And the son of a state witness turned up with a revolver of the same make and model as the suspected murder weapon. We're still waiting on the FBI and Greenville police to tell us what will happen with all of the most recent discoveries. And in the meantime, it's hard to forget what old Leonard Brown told us one day. They get into all this shit, you, you can't see all that happening on the deal. See, you can't see the whole story. They all connected some damn way or another. The jury made its decision 44 years ago, after hearing a couple of days of testimony. The jury took less than four hours to decide Charles Wakefield Jr. was the murderer. Even if no one ever answers any of those remaining questions, if you were sitting on a jury today, knowing what you know now, would you send Charles Wakefield Jr. to death row? Before you answer, consider what these people believe about Frank Looper and Charles Wakefield Jr., starting with retired narcotics deputy Danny Jones. He was putting the heat on somebody. He really was. I mean, I'll always know that, and, and I don't have any answer for what I'm fixing to tell you. Charles Wakefield didn't shoot him. Retired narcotics deputy Harold Lee. My opinion and has been for many years is Charles Wakefield did not kill Frank Looper and his daddy. I will never believe that. That was an opinion that was formed many years before your podcast. A man who served as sheriff for more than a quarter century, Johnny Mac Brown. There wasn't a lot of evidence, in my opinion, that, uh, to convict Charles. The people thought that, that he was railroaded, and I don't know that to be true or not, but uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence pointed to him. Lieutenant Frank Looper's fiance, Rita. You know, I have never been convinced that Whitefield did it. You know, it just didn't make sense. 1970s gangster Fast Eddie Williamson in a conversation with longtime public defender employee, Lynn West. Fast Eddie stopped me and said, uh, so the guy you just got talking to, Wakefield said he didn't, he didn't kill Frank Looper and just, he just looked at me and grinned and that's all he said. And then Fast Eddie to us in 2019. It's still my honest belief that someone in law enforcement who knew how to really use a gun killed Frank Looper. Retired career FBI agent Tom Donahue. I can remember the day of the murder. I went over there. They didn't want any help at all. 
they turned his thumbs down. Why do you like, think that was? I think they knew who did it. I think they knew damn well who set it up, or some of them did. They didn't want anybody coming in to look at the truth. The son of the trial judge, Frank Epps Jr. Something about it just didn't sit right with me. Just didn't seem like the case was right. Meeting him and his attitude always impressed me, and I made me cry when he got out. I don't mind saying that. And finally, the family of Rufus and Frank Looper. Do you think that Charles actually killed your brother and nephew? No, I don't think so. Adele, do you think that your uncle and cousin were killed by Charles Wakefield? No. Those women spent years of their own life trying to help Wakefield get out of prison with the support of Frank Looper's cousin. I don't think any of us ever really bought the official line of the police. Who even today wants everyone to remember the Looper family believes this story is burdened with more than one tragedy. And, and what's really a shame is that man Wakefield, I don't think he, he did that. I think he was a convenient patsy. You know, it ruined his life. It didn't just ruin a lot of lives in our family, it, it ruined a whole other family's lives. You have something the Wakefield jury did not. You have context, backed up by years of investigation. You look at it with the aid of some time and history behind us, and, and you see all of this evidence was circumstantial, and the eyewitness evidence was sketchy at best. The entire thing just reeks of, of railroading. You have the benefit of knowing Wyatt Earp Harper says everything he told the Wakefield jury was a lie, just as he told Eric Gottlieb on tape. This is one strange case. We already know that. Only thing about it, you just happen to be the only one who want to know why is this case so strange. And you know the other people that's trying to keep you from digging in there too, because they don't want the truth to come out, man. And you have the benefit of knowing that after spending years with Charles Wakefield Jr., the Looper family still believes Rufus and Frank Looper did not get the justice they deserved. Talking to Charles, I mean, this, this guy is not a killer. And knowing the Greenville, South Carolina that I grew up in at that time, I think the good old boys did whatever the good old boys needed to do. Knowing what you know today, in 2020, with the benefit of hindsight, and knowing the South Carolina electric chair was waiting for him, ask yourself, is Charles Wakefield Jr. a murderer? And then ask yourself, are Rufus and Frank Looper resting in peace?
Thanks for listening to episode 26. I'm going to ask for a favor here. If you have any thoughts after listening to this episode, please share them with us. You can share them on our Facebook page, your Facebook page, in the Apple Podcast Review section, on Instagram, or on our website, where you can find links to all of those places, and a contact page to get in touch with us directly. That website is murderetcpodcast.com. There you'll also find information on how to offer a donation to this show to help support the production cost and the work that goes into it. And we'll continue to go into it after the end of this season. If you feel like giving us a little cash to get by and support our efforts going forward, you can do that at paypal.me slash murderetc or via Venmo. Our account there is murderetc. Finally, you might have noticed the episode you just heard was not the one I told you was coming at the end of episode 25. Between then and now, I decided, though I intended to give some sort of closing argument, that wasn't the last thing you should hear about this story. So, again, here's what's coming up on the final full episode of this season of Murder Etc. In 2001, the State Parole Board tried to let Charles Wakefield Jr. go free. And then, a young reporter broke the story. And the Parole Board changed its mind. I was devastated. I was heartbroken. You know, I thought that after, after all those years, that it would finally be over. Reckoning with the past. Next time on Murder, Etc.